Hi and welcome to the Girl Next Door podcast. I'm your host Renee Bennett and this is a leadership podcast for ordinary girls compelled to lead an extraordinary life. Make sure you come and find me on social media, girlnextdoor.podcast. Well, hello, hello everyone. How are you? I hope you've had a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful week. Um, I think this is really funny that we are about to talk on feminism again, and I don't know if you can hear it, but right in the room next to me, I've got my washing machine going and my dryer going because, hey, yep, I'm a mum of three, <laughs> lots of washing in my house. <gasps> Ooh, maybe I shouldn't be doing the washing. Maybe that should be a man's job. Anyway, I'm just kidding. Hey, um, look, I don't know who is enjoying this series more, me preparing this or you guys listening. I've um, really, oh my gosh, I'm having a blast doing this. So please keep on chatting with me on social media. I love popping your comments up for other people to see. Um, And I'm actually really surprised at how much this is striking a chord, this whole series. So for those of you that perhaps didn't listen to last week, make sure that you go back and listen. It was our first episode in a new collection that I'm doing called Girl Power, uh, all about um, oh, I literally don't know how long it's going to go for because we want to get around to all the different waves of feminism and gender equality and does gender bias exist and women in the church and women in the pulpit and all of that kind of stuff. So anyway, last week we had a quick look at, well, not a quick look, it was 40 minutes of first wave feminism and how that did a lot of good particularly because it secured the right for women to vote. So remember what I said, next time you stand at the polling booth, be thankful for the suffragettes who really did pay a really big price so that we could have our say when it came to it comes to politics in our countries. Um, I also talked about the definition of feminism and how the definition is a good thing. Um, and if we go by just the definition, probably most of us would say, yes, we absolutely agree with that, but we have to judge feminism by its fruit, not by its intention. So today we are going to look at second wave feminism, and it's going to lead us to a very important question about gender equality and can we really ever achieve gender equality. So I want to weigh in hugely on this. I want to look at what the Bible says about this. So Buckle into your seatbelts, girls and boys. Here we go. So let's look first at second wave feminism. This is probably what you are the most familiar with or that you would perhaps have heard the most about. So this was a period of feminist activity and thought that began in America in the early 1960s and it lasted about two decades, lasted into the 80s. And it quickly spread right around the Western world with an aim to increase equality for women. Okay. And again, same as first wave feminism, this second wave evolved with the civil rights movement. Same deal as the first wave where the abolitionist, I always get that word wrong. The abolitionist movement rose up at the same time as the feminism movement. So where it started was in the 1940s, men obviously had gone to war, which mean that meant that the women stepped up and started working. And with the end of World War II, obviously the men returned and the women were expected to 
give up their jobs and step back into home duties. So what happened was after the women had tasted some what they would call independence, they weren't happy with that. So there was this growing sense of unrest amongst these women and the second wave slowly began to form. Now, a few women became the forerunners of this movement, and one of the best known, you might have heard of this woman or the book that she wrote. Her name is or was Betty Friedan, and she wrote the very well-known book called The Feminine Mystique. Now, her book criticized the idea that women could only find fulfillment through raising children and homemaking. So she said that a lot of women were unhappy as housewives and that the fault did not lay with them, but a world that refused to allow them to exercise their creativity and intelligence. Now, it wasn't that her ideas were new. These ideas were already being discussed through the late 1940s, the the 1950s, and of course, now you've got the 1960s. But what happened was it wasn't that her ideas were revolutionary, but her book was revolutionary in its reach. So women started reading this book and passing it on to their friends. And then they passed it on to a whole chain of well-educated, middle-class women in beautiful homes with families. And guess what? This book gave them permission to be angry. It validated their sense of unrest and what they were feeling. Now, her book is regarded as one of the most influential nonfiction books of the 20th century, and she hypothesizes hypothesizes that women are victims of false beliefs, requiring them to find identity in their lives only through their husbands and children. Okay, so now we've got this movement where a whole bunch of women have this unifying goal, which is not just political equality, which had already began with the first wave, with the vote, but now they wanted social equality with men. So they went on to argue that their problems that, you know, perhaps previously had seemed to be just individual and petty about sex and relationships, access to abortions, domestic labor, that these problems were actually systemic and political. Okay. So this kind of backs up my point a little bit from last week uh, when I mentioned that feminism has made women more angry. So It also encouraged a victim mentality, which I literally mentioned above because it was the premise of Betty Friedan's book, that these women were victims and they felt angry and she validated that. Now, I find two things disturbing here, even though, by the way, I completely agree that uh, I agree with the side of that, um, the second wave in that it wanted to give women more opportunities outside of the home. So that that's not my issue at all. But what I do find disturbing is that we, again, are made to feel like victims. And remember what I said, being a victim always makes us weaker. And I just refuse to join that sorority of victimhood. And the second thing that I find uh, a bit disturbing about Betty Friedan's book was that she said that we've got false beliefs. Now, what was she talking about? Well, she was talking about our belief that we could find marriage and raising children fulfilling. Now, I find this uh, incredibly disturbing to teach girls the opposite to that, which is that finding a life partner and having children isn't fulfilling. 
And I can still see this belief spreading quite wildly today. Uh, Women seem to think that we lose our identity when we have children. And that belief was taught to us by the second wave feminist movement. You know, you see it all the time. Um, I I see it a lot actually in in social media posts by, by mothers, but this is not what the Bible teaches us. So I think we need to look at motherhood differently. We need to look at it from a biblical perspective. The Bible teaches us that children are a blessing and that the role of being a mother has been gifted to us by God. Why would he gift something to us that takes away our identity or holds us back? So at the height of the second wave of feminism, it actually became radical enough that it started to scare people. So second wave feminists were often known as women who were not happy, but they were bitter and angry. So you might have maybe heard about, you know, or have the perception that, you know, women or feminists, women who were feminists were, you know, angry and bitter or man haters, that kind of thing. But that's because their form of um, a particular form of feminism in the second wave was very radical. There was an actually a quote from a young girl at the time. And it's become quite a a popular quote and very insightful. She said that the unhappy women are all feminists and you'll find very few happy, enthusiastic, relaxed people who are ardent supporters of feminism. So I thought that was interesting. So there was this image emerging of feminists as angry and and man-hating and lonely, that would become canonical as the second wave began to lose its momentum. And that image actually still continues to haunt the way that we talk about feminism today. Uh, It would also become foundational to the way the third wave would position itself. But we'll talk about the third wave next week. So what can we learn? Last week, I talked about what we could learn from the first wave feminist movement. And so today I want to talk about what can we learn from the second wave? Remember, the first wave did quite a lot of good. And the second wave also, again, they achieved a lot of good for women, but a lot of what they achieved also um, was quite destructive. So they had some major legislative and legal victories. So here's a few examples. Uh, There was an Equal Pay Act that was passed in 1963 that men and women should be paid exactly the same for the same work. They won the right for married and unmarried women to use birth control. And again, that gave women a lot of freedom. So they didn't have to, you know, have five, six, however many children. They could choose how many children they wanted to have. They won the right to educational equality. Um, But... The other thing that they won, which was not a great thing, and it was a huge part of the second wave feminism, was the agenda to legalize the right for a woman to choose to have an abortion whenever, wherever, and for whatever reason she wanted. So you might have heard of the Roe versus Wade case. That was passed in 1973, which legalized for women to have abortions in the first and second trimesters throughout the US. The other thing that was legalized was the no-fault divorce law in 1976. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. That had a profound personal effect on me. Um, So that meant that a woman could file, well, anybody could file for a divorce and they didn't have to prove that their partner had done something wrong. They could just simply file for a divorce. 
um, they won the right for women to hold credit cards under their own name, which again, great thing. A woman could apply for a mortgage, great thing. Um, They also did a wonderful job of raising awareness of domestic violence and they Um, there was a legislation passed against the sexual harassment of women in the workplace. So they're all really good things. And they massively cared about sexism, which is the discrimination against women based on their sex. Okay, so they did a lot of good for society. But I can also see how feminism has actually done a lot of damage. So I actually count second wave feminism as probably one of the most destructive movements to our society and to women because they actually have worked against and tried to destroy Christian values that our society was built on in the first place. And I still see a lot of their narrative being accepted today. And that's why it's important for us to talk about it so that we just don't accept these things as truth. Because remember what I said last week, just because something is popular doesn't make it true. We should think about it. We should ask questions. We should look at the Bible. What does God say about this? Because there's always you know, the Bible is the thing we should weigh everything against because that is wisdom. That is the best way for us to live by God's design. So second wave feminism, this is probably my greatest issue with it, is it was the beginning of the disassembling of the nuclear family. Now I've said it before that the nuclear family, mum, dad, and the kids is the building block of society. If you destroy the family, you destroy society. So thank you very much, Second Wave Feminism, because they did a really great job of this. Now, let me explain how they did this. Well, firstly, they told women that they should be discontent with being a wife and a mother. Um, And by the way, the people who fought against Second Wave Feminism, they also believed that women could work, by the way. They didn't just they didn't fight against it because they only wanted women to stay in the home. They believed that women could do things outside of the home, but they also believed that family was priority, whereas second wave feminism did not believe that. They told women that they could never find their full identity or fulfillment or happiness in marriage or family. And I have an issue with that because God made us, he designed us to be wives and mothers. And I'm going to go into that in just a moment. Uh, they also brought about, and this is this has destroyed families, the no-fault divorce law. Now, this is probably one of the things that Ronald Reagan, who was the president in America at the time in the 70s and 80s, and he was a wonderful uh, president, but one of his regrets was that he signed the legalization of the no-fault divorce law. Now, this affected me in Australia in 1976 because my parents were the very first lot of people in Australia. They got divorced in 1976 and they got divorced because it was easy because of the no-fault divorce law. Now, I'm going to do another podcast and probably a series about what it's like to be a kid that comes from a broken home. And there's a wonderful lady called Judith Wallerstein who has done a 40-year the longest study that's ever been done on children that have grown up from divorced homes. She went into it trying to prove that children are resilient and divorce didn't affect them. She ended up writing four books and being one of the biggest advocates against divorce because she could see that divorce um, 
absolutely changes the outcome for children and not in a good way. So I'll leave that there because uh, I want to talk about that in another podcast. But having a no-fault no divorce law and making divorce easy is not a good thing for our society. It just makes it so easy to, to walk out of a commitment. Um, the feminists also made the LGBT agenda mainstream. Um, they encourage sex before marriage by legalizing birth control to unmarried girls. And of course, you probably would know the 60s as the sexual revolution as well. Uh, they legalized the killing of babies, which we talked about with abortion. Um, they also began the narrative of the patriarchy. Okay, so the patriarchy means that we live in a society where men hold the power and women are largely excluded. Now, that is a narrative that has destroyed men's role in society and has actually destroyed um, men's lives and women's lives. Again, so much more to be said, but don't have the time here for that. But that's where the narrative began about the patriarchy. Um, the second wave also brought in this whole idea of equality. That's literally what they were going for. They were going for gender equality. And this is what I want to concentrate on for the rest of our time together today. I wanted to spend time looking at this big question that I have. And I've I have spent literally hours and hours preparing for this podcast today. Every time Cameron would turn around and be like, what are you doing now? I'm like, oh, I'm just doing my podcast. Um, because I I really wanted to kind of get this right and I, it really made me think a lot and made me, you know, I, I had this gut feeling that I wasn't a huge fan of this second wave of feminism, but I really wanted to get into the nitty gritty of why that might be. Um, and I want to ask this question, since feminism is trying to make the genders equal, is it even possible to reach gender equality? Is it possible to make the genders equal? Okay. Let's dive into this. Um, let's start first with the truth of what God says, okay? Where does God sit with feminism? Now, God expresses his authority in scripture, and that is that we must live, the best way for us to live is according to his design, not how we feel, but according to his design, now, it is very clear that in the Bible, men and women are of equal value. That goes without saying, okay? But gender equality and value are two different things. I'll explain that in a moment. But men and women were, were and have always and will always be of equal value according to the Bible, according to God. So if we look at the beginning, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 to 27. God said, Let us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, make mankind, ooh, maybe I should change that to humankind, in our image, after our likeness, and let them, let them both have complete authority over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the beasts, and all the earth, and over everything that creeps upon the earth. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image and likeness of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So we see here that God gave us equal authority to do a job here. 
He didn't say, man, you're going to be the one that has dominion and authority over the earth and the woman's just this little helper on the side. He gave authority equally to men and women. Again, Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Now the Lord said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper, suitable, adapted, complementary for him. I'm reading from the Amplified, by the way. Now, we interpret this word helper as we know of it, right? So we interpret that word as, oh, we're just this little sidekick. You know, we're a servant or we're subservient. But every time that word helper is used in the Bible, it's not the word helper that we know it in the English languages as subservient or a servant. It actually refers to an assistant. It also means might and strength. So in other words, we were made to be a strength corresponding or equal to man. Okay, so there we can see the just a couple of scriptures. If I had more time, I'd go into it more, but just a few scriptures. I mean, you could look in the New Testament at the way that Jesus treated women, and we will go into that on a, in a further podcast along when we look at women in ministry as well. But there's another truth that's very clear in the Bible that I want to get into, and that is this. Our biology determines our sexual orientation aka gender, which determines our roles. Let me say that again. Our biology okay, determines our gender, which determines our roles. So let's look at this first part that our biology determines our gender. Okay, so well, we just read above in Genesis 1.27 that God created us male and female. Okay, there are only two genders. In Mark chapter 10, verse 6, it says, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Our biology determines if we are male or female. Biology determines gender. Not only do we have different genitals, obviously, but if you look at our chromosomes, the way that God designs us, a woman and a man have two different chromosomes. People can... Uh, just look at your DNA and tell if you're a female or a male by the number of chromosomes. Okay, so our biology determines our gender. But this is more what I want to look at. Our gender also determines our roles. Okay, so Mark chapter 10 verse 7 goes on to say, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife. Okay, you, and that, and by the way, that same scripture is in um, Genesis 1, no, Genesis 2, I think it is, um, where a man shall leave his wife, uh, sorry, a man shall leave his mother and father and join to his wife. So here the scriptures are talking about man, woman, mother, father, wife, husband. Okay. So what God's telling us here is our design Our gender determines our roles. If you are a male, then you are a man, a husband, a father. If you are a woman, you go on to be a wife and a mother. Our gender attaches roles to us. So God is pretty clear about two things. One, we are of equal value. And two, we have different roles depending on our gender. But do you remember what second wave feminism did? Not only did it want to confuse us with who we should be partnered up with, remember the LGBT push? Not only did it want to confuse us with that, even though the Bible clearly says that a man should be joined with his wife, but they wanted to make us discontent 
with the fact that our gender comes with certain roles. The feminists were pushing for far more than to have equal value with men. They wanted us to have gender equality. So let me explain what gender equality is because it's not to do with your value. We are inherently made in the image of God. Whether you are male or female, you are of equal value. We are of value because we are human, made by God. But let's have a look at what the feminist gender is really pushing, which is gender equality. So let's let maybe write this down if you've got notes. Gender equality means, and I got this, um, I, I've done a lot of research, so I've got this as a quote. This isn't me, my, my words. Gender equality means that women's and men's rights, responsibilities, and opportunities will not depend on whether they're born male or female. Okay, I'll say it again. That a women's and men's rights responsibilities and opportunities don't depend on whether they're born male or female. And I get that. They mean that it doesn't matter what gender you are, you have exactly the same opportunity and responsibilities and rights. Okay. So for example, a girl can become a prime minister. I've got no issue with girls being given every opportunity, but this is where my issue lies. Sometimes our responsibilities and opportunities do depend on whether we're male or female. And we shouldn't be made to feel like a victim or that we're missing out because of this. We shouldn't be made to feel that our God-given design and roles are holding us back. So how can gender equality, remember, I'm not talking about value. We are of equal value. But how can gender equality exist when men and women are different biologically, physically, and emotionally? It means that because of our roles, sometimes we will have different responsibilities. We will have different opportunities. Let me give you a really thought-provoking example. Now, this is a really heavy example, but I wanted to, I wanted to really kind of send this one home. One of the reasons that feminists push the right for a woman to have an abortion would be that so she can have the equal right that a man does to walk away from a pregnancy. Okay. Now, remember their goal is to make sure that our responsibilities are not different just because we're a woman. So if a woman gets pregnant, the father, he can just walk away. He doesn't have to take any responsibility. So a feminist would say, well, women should have equal rights to walk away and equally be able to give up their responsibility and not have to take responsibility for the baby. So an abortion means that the woman can have the same right and walk away. But this is equal rights in a feminist mind. But what they forget to mention is that while the man can walk away immediately, the woman has to go through a physically and emotionally painful process of aborting that baby before she can walk away. Is that truly equal rights? As hard as they try to make it sound that way, it's not equal because the woman has an emotional scar that she carries for the rest of her life. What about the fact that because we're a woman, we're the ones to get pregnant and have a baby? And that means stepping away from our careers for a while because of this. Now, in a feminist mind, this is unfair. They think that this is career suicide. They think that our careers shouldn't suffer because we're a woman and we have to have the babies. And I, 
I completely get it. And part of what they want is for the men to be able to have equal right to, um, to have time off work, to have parental leave as well. And that's a great thought. And that's a great question. And that's a great um, example of some countries who have actually done that. And I'm going to talk about that in a moment. But my argument is this, our responsibilities are different because of our gender. They, they just, they are. And we just have to accept that and not see that as, like I said before, as a negative thing, as it's a God-given, it's a part of our God-given design. Why would God give us a role or a responsibility that's going to be harmful to us? So maybe we can even think of it like this. To me, gender equal sounds an awful lot like gender neutral, right? So, oh, it shouldn't matter if we're male or female, we should have exactly, exactly equal rights, responsibilities, opportunities. Well, that's being gender neutral. Is that what we want? The more equal our rights and opportunities, the more equal society would become, right? You see, feminism at the beginning was about women being considered the same value as men, but now it's about being equal to men, therefore equaling out the genders, which sounds like gender neutral society to me, which sounds kind of out of balance. And that sounds to me like feminism's becoming extreme and very anti-Bible. God clearly assigns a biological gender to us. He didn't create a gender neutral society. He actually didn't create a gender equal society either. That's pretty full on for me to say that, but he didn't. He made a gender to have a specific role, but what he did make us was equal in value. But these roles are not the same and does affect our opportunity and responsibilities. So it's like they see this difference as unfair. And that's the narrative I think we need to change. That difference of being a woman is not unfair. Why is it so so disempowering to be different? Why is it so disempowering that more men, for example, might want to work as engineers when they biologically lean that way? Even This is so interesting. Do you know, even when women have the choice to be an engineer if they want to, most choose not to. Even when they have the right and they have the opportunity. But that's not good enough for the feminists. They're not happy until they see a 50 50 split. Why? Because where is the inequality when women can choose that career if they want to, but they choose not to? There's this kind of unspoken thing that, you know, a man can do whatever a man can do, a woman can do. And society is pushed and pushed to make that so. And it's true. A male, if you're an engineer, Oh, a girl can be an engineer. If you're a CEO, I can be a CEO. If you're a tradie, I can be a tradie. If you're a soldier in combat, I can be one. Do you think there's anything a woman can't do that a man can do? Well, they can do most things, become a female pilot, become an athlete, become a truck driver, become a prime minister, become a professional fighter, an engineer, a soldier, you name it, they can do it. But there's a few things that women's ca- women cannot do that men that men can. They can't be a boyfriend. They can't be a husband. They can't be a father. They can't be a grandfather. Mind you, I could go really further into this because again, aren't we trying to give women the right to do that? If you, if you don't want to be a woman, you can just become a man, then you can be a boyfriend. Let's turn the tables. Is there anything that a man uh, can't do that a woman can? And again, men can choose any career that they want, but they can't get pregnant. They can't deliver a baby. They can't be a girlfriend, a wife, a mother, a grandmother. Are we trying to reach some sort of utopia by making society completely equal? Because we don't like to admit that we really can't make it equal because there are two distinct genders at play here. 
And clearly we're so different. So I want to finish off by looking at a society where they've actually tried to bring in gender, uh, they've actually reached for gender equality. And Scandinavia is amongst other countries, one example. Now here, they've tried not only to push, but they have supported more than any other country to make genders equal. You can look this up and look at the ways that they've done that. For example, having um, equal uh, right for a man to take paternity leave when his wife has a baby, Example, for example. Um, so they've moved more toward gender equality than any other countries. Okay. And guess what? The personality differences between men and women have increased rather than decreased. And the proportion of women who choose normally male-dominated fields such as STEM, by STEM I mean science, tech, engineering, and maths, the number of women choosing those fields has decreased, not increased. Last year, there were researchers in the US and the UK who found that countries with an existing culture of gender equality have an even smaller proportion of women taking degrees in science, technology, and maths. So as culture becomes more gender neutral, guess what? The number of women choosing STEM fields decreases. Women naturally choose work in caregiving roles. Does that mean a man can't choose work in a caregiving role? Not at all. Does that mean a woman can't choose to have a career in STEM? Not at all. But when left to their own devices in a society that completely supports gender neutrality, gender equality, women go for the caregiving roles, men lead to the STEM. There's this uh, professor in, I'm not quite sure where he's from, but looking at all of this research, and this is what he said, um, girls and boys are different and have different preferences on the whole, he argues. He believes that too much media focus is placed on the lack of women in CEO positions since since these account for such a small proportion of jobs overall and suggests that more men fill these roles since the personality traits and ambition to be important and famous is higher in men than women. He goes on to say, it's a paradox. Nobody would have expected this to be the reality of our time. So as countries get more egalitarian, more gender equal, that means that there's less social programming, you know, because that's what some people blame. Oh, it's social programming where we program girls to like pink and boys to like blue. So even in these societies where there's less social programming, the differences get larger, not smaller. Now, the interesting thing is this data was generated by the left wing who were unpleasantly shocked by this because they were trying to prove the opposite. So you can't say that, um, you know, we're acting out due to the expectations that society's put on us because this experiment in Scandinavia proves that even with no expectations from society, men have a more natural bent to STEM and women to roles that are compassionate and it is literally the opposite to what the gender theorists predicted. So I guess the takeaway from that is it's not even our own natural bent to want to be doing the same things or to want to be supposedly equal. Now, remember when I say equal, I'm talking gender equal definition, not God definition, which is equal in value. Given the choice we actually make choices, men and women, that do not lead 
to supposed equality of rights, opportunities, or outcomes. Oh, we made it. That was a lot of information. Um, there was a second question that I wanted to look at, which I'm going to branch into, going to branch into next week, which is, well, even if we did achieve gender equality, is that beneficial to us? And I want to dive into that next week. But um, I hope that what you've taken away from today, that it's made you think that it will make you go and do more of your own research as well. Um, there was obviously so many other things I could have said in there. There were so many issues that I just had to kind of gloss over. But I wanted to land on my main two points, which is that we are of equal value to God. We always have been and we always will be. But that perhaps, dare I make the suggestion that because God has given us clearly different roles which are attached to our gender, that maybe gender equality is not something that we will reach or even that we want to reach in society. And remember, in case I get anyone that writes to me and says, oh my gosh, Renee, what you said was so wrong. I'm not talking about our value. We are of equal value. Anyway, I enjoyed that. I hope you enjoyed that. Please come along. I always say it every week, but chat to me on social media. Come and give me an inbox. Um, please subscribe. Five-star ratings are always welcome. Um, and I cannot wait to jump into next week which will be about can we achieve gender equality and is it beneficial to us? So have a fab, fab, fab week. Oh, and the other thing I was going to say was please share, share this podcast, share it, send it along to your friends, get as many listeners as we can, and I will see you next week. Have a good one. Bye. Make sure you come and find me on social media, girlnextdoor.podcast.